some mercy and grace this evening. Oh yes, hands up. Yeah, we all are. We are in the right place. You're in the right place this evening. We are currently um, doing a series on the theme of bold, being bold, an invitation to be bold and to be confident, not because of our own brilliance or strength, although there is plenty of that, I'm sure, in the room today, but because of the new life and the forgiveness that we have offered to us in Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who gives us a gift of boldness in place of our own weakness. And over the past uh, three weeks, Phil has been outlining a vision for this church, for SPS. And so we've been thinking about three things over the past three weeks. We began by thinking about our core and our need to, to strengthen our core. It was, uh, it was my birthday this week. I've had a lot of birthday cake. I definitely need to do some, some core strengthening needs to go on. But core, standing for celebrating God's goodness, organizing our resources well, relating deeply to one another, and evangelizing effectively. And then the second week on vision we had, we talked about building bridges, building bridges to one another, building bridges in our local community here in Shadwell, but building bridges also to the people that we engage with every day in the places and the communities that God has put us in. And then last week, we thought about the more that God has for us, the more that he has for us as individuals, but also as a church in terms of growing and multiplying and planting out. And as we've been thinking about these three points over the last three weeks, these three areas of vision and growth, we've also been going through the book of Hebrews. So we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's been the backdrop. This amazing letter, this New Testament letter, that reveals that Jesus is the hope and pinnacle for all the hopes that have gone before, the fulfillment of all that has been promised in the Old Testament the one that we are called today to approach boldly. So we're going to continue going through this extraordinary letter in the coming weeks. And we're going to be in chapter 4 today. Uh, it's on page 1138-1138, chapter 4. We're just actually going to read the, kind of the, the last third of it. So before we just jump into the reading, uh, I'll summarize what's gone before. This is a chapter that speaks about Sabbath rest. Not just the rest that comes on a Sunday at the end of a long, busy working week. And not just what is referenced in the, in the chapter, the rest that the people of God experienced after exhausting wandering in the wilderness. And then Joshua led them into the promised land and they had a season of rest. The, the chapter is talking about a much bigger rest that is offered to all of us. An eternal rest in the loving presence of God. But in order to enter that rest, we can't get there on our own. We're dependent on a, a priest. The priest of Jesus is the one who gives us access to this eternal rest. Not a, not a priest like me or even like Phil, but the priest of Jesus. And so I'm going to read from verse 11, but that's the kind of the backdrop. I'm going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So page 1138, it says this. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. 
For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Two things I want to draw out from that passage about the kind of priest Jesus is. Next week, I'm going to be thinking about the priest who sacrifices and saves. But this week, I want us to think about the priest who sees and sympathizes who sees and sympathizes. Firstly, the priest who sees. Have a look down again to verses 12 and 13. How, does, how do those verses make you feel? We've got all kinds of things going on there. We've got a sword and it's cutting. It's cutting through joint and marrow, through soul and spirit. It's laying absolutely everything bare. Nothing is left unexposed. So hearing that, how do you guys feel? What do, shout out some words. What does that, how does that make you feel inside when you read that passage? Any words? Exposed, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Anything else? You okay? It's like, oh, it's pretty chill. Yeah, this is okay. <laughs> or any other words? Go on. Vulnerable, yeah, but so vulnerable, my goodness. Anything else? One more. Silence, silence. Terrified, absolutely flipping terrified. Doesn't that sound terrifying to you? That the word of God is slicing through you like a double-edged sword? Absolutely terrifying. There is violence in that imagery, a sword cutting through us like butter. There's some skilled butchery going on. Now, I don't know, some of you, I'm not sure if actually anyone here has come around for dinner and actually I've cooked them a roast chicken. I'm not sure. Looking, But I, I have terrible skills when it comes to carving. I don't know if anyone here, anyone here wants to confess to having good skills when it comes to like, you know, the, the turkey. Oh, excellent, Sam, you know, on, on Christmas Day, you the one given the task to cut up the turkey. It's a particular skill, isn't it? I have to say, I do not have this skill and I end up ripping apart the chicken. It looks like some terrible massacre has happened. But here we've got skills. Skilled butchery, the sword, the, the word of God, the double edged sword is cutting between joint and marrow, but not just between the physical stuff, it's cutting between soul and spirit. The invisible, unseen parts of our heart are being cut into. Well, maybe it didn't seem too scary for you because if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the other side of it. You know there's forgiveness and grace. But imagine reading these words without knowing that, knowing that God could look into the depths of your being 
And imagine if that was that. I think it's pretty flipping frightening. The last couple of days, I've um, I've been on a uh, kind of a, kind of a training course uh, for a number of clergy, and um, it's been with a psychologist, a guy called Jim McNeish. He's a brilliant guy, and so part of this has involved us looking into the depths, the darkest, deepest depths of what we're really like inside, like the worst parts of us, and drawing that up and sharing it with one another. I didn't even know these people. It was the most hideous thing I've ever done. Uh, I feel a bit like I am that butchered chicken at this moment. I've kind of like brought out, I've been exposed all of the worst parts of me with people who I've never met before. They all know it now. It's out there. Well, one of the things we looked at on this training course was... Um, this, uh, this psychological idea of something called rackets, the rackets that we run. And this came from the, um, the Prohibition era in the States. So in, uh, in many states in America, between 1919 and 1933, there was prohibition in order, which meant that alcohol was completely illegal. It was um, totally banned. All these sort of like vat, there are sort of, you can see pictures on the internet and of all these vats of, um, of uh, you know, beer, barrels of beer being poured away and Gambling became illegal and all this kind of to cut down the vice in the country. But of course, human nature being human nature didn't mean that people stopped drinking. Of course not. It just went underground. And so all around uh, the, the States, these places called speakeasies opened up, which on one side would look like, you know, uh, a lovely, there's a little um, tea shop or a coffee shop and older, you know, lovely old ladies having their tea or their coffee. And, or there might be a milk bar or it might even be a church. Quite a few of them were churches. But actually, if you went to the back of the building and did your special secret knock or whatever it was to get through, you would discover there would be another door through to some kind of den of vice where cocktails were being made and people were throwing dice and people were gambling with cards and women were dancing saucily. So these places, um, these speakeasies were places that appeared on the outside as being totally innocent, completely innocent places. But what was going on? They were running a racket. They were running a racket underneath, in the background, behind the facade, something completely different was going on. And we explored these over the last couple of days. And we searched the, our seemingly innocent behaviors that we have outwardly that actually had more devious and dark motivations behind them and roots, ultimately, so we could bring those things into the light of God. I think that we all have, to some extent, those secret speakeasies in our hearts that really need to be raided. Raided not by the police, but raided by the word of God. We all have motives and desires that need to be laid bare. These verses are frightening to me, I think, but there's reassurance here as well. You are known as a whole person. You are not forgotten your innermost turmoils and struggles are seen. They're seen. You don't need to pretend. In fact, you cannot pretend before God. But not only does God see those, those darker things inside our hearts, but God also sees and knows um, the causes behind them, the traumas you've experienced, the difficult things that you've gone through in your life that have produced particular behaviors in you today. We don't need to try and justify ourselves before God. God already knows. 
So there's one image there of the speakeasy, the rackets going on. But I wonder if another image might also help us as we think about this. The image of surgery, necessary surgery. Cutting out the tumors in our life. Cutting between, there's a knife here, cutting between the truth and the lie. Cutting between the, the sort of the inner, sort of the outward kind of appearance of something that is positive and, and seems okay and seems acceptable and the toxic, toxic uh, cancerous thing that is actually within us that needs to be dealt with. Well, I know that I need that surgery. I need surgery in my thoughts and in my attitudes and in my heart. I wonder if an updated image to the, um, the double-edged sword might be a laser beam. Now, this is what the word of God is like, God's laser beam that is cutting between what is good and what is not good. I need that laser to come and cut out the cancer in my soul. And better to have it done now, better to have a regular treatment of this than to wait until the end of my life where everything has kind of rotted inside. It's so refreshing, isn't it, when someone in the public sphere, someone in the public eye is open, someone who wants to expose who they really are or the things that they've really done wrong, as opposed to the ones who want to cover up and pretend that everything is okay. Isn't it so refreshing when we have a genuine apology from a politician? It's such a, a kind of, it's just it's such a good news story, isn't it? It's so wonderful. This week, I kind of feel like we've had a bit of a contrast. We've had, on the one hand, um, the presidential candidate, Donald Trump, kind of, again, it kind of being just, you know, another lie has been laid upon another lie, laid upon another lie, in order to kind of save face and to create this facade. And it's so disappointing and it's so sad to see that happen. And it's been built upon racism and prejudice and um, attitudes that are all about trying to maintain a particular appearance. And then I don't know if any of you heard... Um, a speech in the week by the Canadian president, Justin Trudeau, uh, who was talking about uh, wanting to welcome Syrian refugees into Canada. But he said at the beginning he wanted to make a confession and an apology. And he said how terrible the country has treated people in the past. And he talked about um, the, uh, the internment of uh, Italian Canadians and Japanese Canadians during the Second World War that were treated abysmally. And then he talked about the boatloads of people from the Punjab people who'd come across to find refuge and sanctuary in Canada and had been turned away brutally. And then the Jewish people who'd come across in boatloads who'd also been turned away and not given any refuge. And he talked about how terrible the indigenous people of Canada had been treated. And it was something so refreshing to hear that kind of apology, that sense of like, this is the horrible landscape that we've been dealing with. And exposing that before saying, right, now we want to do something different. Such an honesty in contrast to what we've been seeing going on in, um, in the States. So I think it's worth us sitting with the discomfort of these words for a moment, verses 12 and 13, and inviting God to lay bare your soul. The psalmist says this, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. 
One of the functions of a priest is to hear the confession of sin. Now, we don't do that very much in this church. It's kind of, it's often in much more Catholic churches that confession is a more formal thing. And we don't need to confess to one another. We have a mediator in Christ. Mediator in Christ. He's the only one we need to confess to. But it cannot be a helpful thing to do, to confess to someone tra- you know, tra- who's trusted to us, a friend who we know is going to keep confidence with us. And I just want to invite you, uh, either towards the end of this service, or to, to turn to someone you trust, if there's anything that you feel you want to bring out into the light, and share that with someone else so you can be prayed for and receive that freedom and healing. Or if you want to ever meet with me or with Phil, uh, maybe in the week you want to come and meet up and just say, there's something that I just has been bothering me, and I want to share that. There's an invitation for you to do that. Uh, to do some sin surgery, which can only bring about healing and freedom. Well, what is this double-edged sword? What is that surgeon's knife? What is the laser that I've been talking about? Well, it's this. Now, obviously, the writer of the Hebrew didn't have all of this because he's writing it at the time. He didn't have the full Bible. But he certainly would have had the Hebrew Testament, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And he would have had some message about Jesus. Clearly, he understands who Jesus is. So even though he didn't have the full thing, he would have had quite a bit of it. But there's a bit of a play on words going on in the passage that we read about the word of God. And it's, I'm just going to get a tiny bit technical, so just stay with me. Um, but the word of God mentioned in verse 12 is the logos. That's the Greek word, the logos of God, the word of God. But it's also mentioned in verse 13, where it says the account that we have to give right at the end of verse 13, the account that we give back to God, that's the same word. It's the word logos. Our words, our logos, is judged by the logos, the word of God. But we're not talking about a dull and dusty text here. Because in the next verse we have, we have the word made flesh walking into the scene. God is not just an abstract idea or word or thought. The word has become flesh, the person of Jesus Christ. The thoughts of our hearts, the things that we've been talking about, those difficult things, aren't judged by some cosmic rule book that is out there, by some set of rules that is abstract, or some unfeeling words on a page. Our judge is Jesus, the Logos made flesh, who lived and breathed on earth, who knows and understands what it is to be human. So the priest who sees, but the priest who also sympathizes. In the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, we have this really dramatic vision of of Christ, of what Jesus is like. It says this, I'm just going to read these verses to you. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, and his eyes were blazing fire. This is more scary imagery coming up, sorry. His feet were bronze, like they were glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And then, this is the the critical bit, coming out of his mouth was this sharp, double-edged sword. 
and his face was like the sun shining all of, in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, surprise, surprise, I fell down at his feet like dead. Again, we have this picture of Christ, but with this double-edged sword, the image of the word of God coming out of his mouth. Terrifying image. But what happens next? Jesus reaches out to the writer of those words, put his hands on his shoulder and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. When we go back to um, our reading in Hebrews, after verse 13, verse 14 onwards, we have this big sort of sigh of relief. Phew, he says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are. Tempted in every way. In the past, when I've read that, or I've kind of known, yes, Jesus was tempted, I've kind of thought those temptations were probably a bit trivial. And I just kind of had in my mind that, you know, Jesus would like catch sight of someone attractive and be like, oh, I fancy them a bit. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I don't. And then, um, you know, or it'd be like, oh, I'm really hungry. I really fancy the biggest piece of fish at the table. And then be like, oh, no, 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 I'll have the small piece. You know, I kind of like in my mind, imagine these like really small temptations that Jesus was dealing with. But as I've been reflecting on this passage, I think, uh, no, I think no to that. Jesus was tempted by every issue that the human heart has dealt with. And he dealt with that for the whole of his lifetime. So just for a minute, just like call out to me. I know you love calling out. You're like really, <laughs> you're in a super interactive mode. Um, but just call out to me, like what are some of the sins that Jesus might have, done, you know, might have like struggled with? Just call out, just any sins. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, to doubt that he was the son of God. Yeah, absolutely. So to wrestle with doubt and wrestle with his own identity. Yeah, absolutely. Any other sort of like temptations or sins that he might have uh, wrestled with? Jealousy, exactly, yep. Pride, yeah, Absolutely. I'm not judging. If you shout them out, I'm not saying that it's something you're wrestling with. Don't worry, I'm not making a judgment. Yeah? yeah? Desires of the flesh. Yes, lust. Oh, my goodness, lust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, every single, you know, laziness or selfishness or all of those things. Jesus was tempted in every single way. Every single way, all those things that we struggle with. And we see a little snapshot of that, don't we? When Jesus is in the desert and we see that he has... Um, you know, we definitely see that sense of that bodily uh, sort of temptation when the devil comes to tempt him and he wants to eat that food. There's kind of, I think there's probably more going on in the bodily hungers that he's resisting there. Who doesn't struggle with, uh, in some way to do with bodily hungers? Or a temptation to make himself self-important. Uh, we see that very much in that story. A temptation for power for its own sake rather than for others. All of those temptations go on. C.S. Lewis once said this, no one knows how bad they are until they've tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is that good people don't know what temptation really means. This is a lie. Only those who really try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
Someone who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it's like. That's why bad people, he says, know nothing about badness. They have lived a very sheltered life because they've given in. We only find out about the strength of the evil impulse inside us when we try to fight it. And because Christ is the only one who never yielded to temptation, he's the only one who knows what full temptation means. He's the only complete realist. He never gave in. And those temptations wouldn't have got easier. They would have got harder throughout his life. He really understands what temptation is about. He lived a life of resisting significant temptation. All those sins that are lurking behind the doors of the speakeasy, all of those things, Jesus spent his life resisting. And yet, and yet he did not succumb. He is not stuck in the same situation as us. That would be useless. If I've done something wrong and I want to confess to someone else or I want to share a struggle I'm going through with someone else, I want someone to listen to me who will be sympathetic, who will do the right "Mm mm-hmm and nodding face and like, you know, you know, all of that. I want that. I want the sympathy. But I don't want to go to somebody who is stuck in the same situation as me because that's completely useless. I want someone who's in a different situation who can offer a hand out of the mess. I went to... um, the festival Greenbelt a few years ago, a Christian festival. And I, before I went, um, one of my friends who goes every year, I asked her what I needed to pack. And she was like, ah, oh, you know, it never rains. It never rains. Don't you worry. And, uh, you know, even if it rains, the ground never gets swamped. It's like really like solid ground. You'll be fine. So I was like, so I don't need to pack any wellies then? She was like, you don't need to pack any wellies. Well, can you guess what happened? Uh, the first night, this torrential rain came and absolutely swamped the whole ground and what had had been solid ground became thick liquid mud and uh, my friend I mean another friend uh, who I was with like the most organized person in all the world she was like don't you worry I've got a spare pair of wellies I'm like who packs a spare pair who even has a spare pair of wellies but the issue was that I am size um size four and a half and she was size seven so like these wellies were a little bit like clown shoes on me and so I put them on and like to get between like where we're camping to like any other you know event or function is to go quite a long distance through thick liquid mud and so every step you know I'd put my foot in the mud and then as soon as I'd like try to take the next step lift my foot out and of course my foot would shoot out of the welly so uh, that was no good so I had to actually hold on to the wellies as I kind of like crept around like the campsite like this and like each one was this massive squelch completely stuck in the mud but the problem was is that there was no help from anyone around me because my friends were stuck in the same situation. We were all going along like snail's pace and like on turn up, obviously the seminars finished by the time we got there because it would take three hours to kind of squelch through the mud in these ridiculous wellies. It's no good. Every so often, we would, it was no good to like rely on my friends. But every so often, like this truck would go by that would be like sorting out the celebrities or whatever, and it would have these huge, massive tires on that would just like glide over the mud as though they were nothing. You know, would get splattered in the in the, uh, the as it you know whizzed past us. But that was absolutely fine. That is what we needed. Something that was able to cope with the mud, uh, not uh, my sort of my fellow friends. When we're stuck in a mess. We need something outside of ourselves to pull us out of the mud. 
Well, that's what Christ does for us as our high priest, who's not only come down to earth to experience the struggles that we face, our longings and our wrestling with difficult issues. He's not only come and experienced temptation, but he's won. And as verse 14 says, he's then gone through the heavens. He's gone out of this world and reaches down to unstick us out of the mud to set us free from the mess. And when we come face to face with God, when we need to give our account to him, when we need to give our logos to this uh, high priest, we will point to the high priest of Jesus, this logos who took those struggles on himself in order to impart on us his righteousness, that we might have the righteousness not of ourselves, but of Christ. So may we place our lives under the scrutiny of God's word, this laser beam of God's word that cuts between all the rubbish and reveals what is true. May we fling open the doors of our heart into those secret back places that need the light. May we invite God to come and perform that sin surgery in our lives. Feel the fear. Allow yourselves to tremble at God's word. And then hear these words of Christ. Do not be afraid. I sympathize with your weaknesses. I understand the temptations that you face. Approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, and receive from this high priest, Jesus, all the forgiveness and mercy and grace that you could ever need. Amen. Why don't we stand as we come to respond? If I can invite the band to come up. It might be that you feel that there are some parts of your heart that need some of that, that surgery performed on them, that laser beam to come in and uh, do that cutting out, cutting away of what is not good and not of God. Well, let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and search us now. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here with us this evening.